If you haven't finished the business plan for your haunt, today's episode is for you. We're gonna walk you through making one. That's coming up on today's show. Welcome to the show, I'm Philip. On the HAN Show, we bring you the news, information, and education you need to prepare for Halloween. We also have a lot going on outside of this podcast, and the best way to ensure you're not missing out is to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at the link in our show notes. And a reminder that applications for our annual Hauntathon, which is our Halloween programming, close April 28th. Apply at hauntathon.info. That's hauntathon.info. Today, we're outlining the essentials of a haunt business plan. If you're serious about making your haunt successful or even getting funding, the first step is a business plan. Today's episode is a recording from Brian's Haunt Masterclasses, so this session was presented live to a group of students who are asking questions. You can join these haunters at the next live session at hauntertoolbox.com. Okay, here we go with Haunt Business Planning 101 in three, two, one. Tonight we're talking Haunt Business Planning 101 with Allie Stones from Heart of Horror Production. And she does specialize in setting up haunted attraction business plan. But I'm going to let Allie talk about that. Uh, thank you for joining us. And tonight is a free class for everybody. I'll let you guys know that our Haunt Master members, we do, this is a Haunt Master membership thing. We do 12 classes, masterminds a year. So Welcome. If you guys want more in information or signing up to be a Hauntmaster member, that is at hauntertoolbox.com. Thank you, Allie, for joining us and sharing your yeah. wisdom tonight. And please talk a little bit about yourself and what you're doing tonight. Okay, cool. Um, so to give you guys a little bit of background, I started my own uh, well, Heart of Horror Productions back in 2018 with the intention of creating a haunted attraction uh, myself. And then in that process of it, uh, COVID hit and had to put those plans to the wayside. But that was all right, because at the time I was actually working for personal investors, both overseas and in the US, and working with uh, reviewing business plans for them that were submitted to them by small businesses like most of us are. And then I was working with those small business owners uh, or hopeful small business owners in, in many cases to refine their business plans, um, develop more thorough feasibility studies, and then resubmit them uh, for proposals, uh, or resubmit them to the business owner, or excuse me, the investors. Um, at that time, I was also doing a little bit of side work for myself with developing, you know, as I think a lot of us have just tons of ideas of both hot and non-hot related, you know, ideas that we wanna see if they can take off or not. So I was doing quite a lot for myself and some friends and family. And then when COVID hit, just thought, hey, you know, I can see in the haunted attraction industry that there's really not much out there, especially new information out there to help people get started in the industry. And as soon as you kind of step away from the excitement of the daydream of what you want your haunted attraction to be, it can get really overwhelming really quickly with the math and the numbers and the logistics of everything. And so, um, and I also have a pretty cool insight to an investor side of things. So instead of looking at funding through banks, and so I just kind of wanted to put all of this together into um, a business service for the industry. And so Heart of Horror Productions turned over into more business coaching for haunted attractions and business planning services. And we do kind of everything from just reviewing plans that are already written to developing full scale 40 page proposals for, a, you know, 
getting funding and talking to investors. Um, and yeah, I've worked with lots of companies that are haunt focused, that are entertainment focused and want to do something holiday themed or event focused and want to do something holiday themed and just kind of help them flesh out their ideas. And we all need all the information that we can get because we know it can be confusing when you yes. first start up. To say the least. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's extraordinary. And so um, if you want me to just go ahead and jump right on in. Sure, uh, please do. To it all. Okay. So on the topic of it being super confusing, there's actually resources that are already in pretty much everybody's community that you can access that would be, I recommend everybody to check out. Um, your county and your city should both have some sort of a small business organization. You can usually find it on the government's website or the city's website. It'll be somewhere in like their economic development tab or drop down menu. And it is a, usually it's either a nonprofit or it's a local government run business or organization that is sole purpose is to help small business owners get started. So they can help with figuring out what forms you need, how to file those forms, um, local, like people in the community that you would need to connect with and talk to. And we're going to talk more about those individuals as well, in case um, your local small business organization isn't very helpful, or you are one of like the few places that doesn't have one yet, or doesn't have a very well-developed one. But there are quite a lot of resources in the community. And then on top of that, for anybody, and you'll have to excuse me, I'm going to look down at my notes uh, quite a bit because I want to make sure that I cover all of this information uh, for you guys. So something that everybody should really talk to uh, as soon as you think about really taking that really fun daydream that you have and transferring it into reality is I would recommend talking to a tax professional, the CPA. Uh, you're going to want to talk to a commercial realtor that ideally has like really type A or like go-getter hard-ass kind of personality that's going to aggressively go after information for you, it will become critical to your project. Uh, you're going to want to talk to your land use and your zoning division. Sometimes that's the same department in your government and sometimes they're two separate spaces. And you're going to want to talk to the site planning as well. And then, of course, our favorite person, the fire marshal. You need to talk to the fire marshal. I know we all say that. It's posted all over Haunter's Hangout and it is so true. Um, honestly, make great friends with all of these people because you're going to be talking to them a lot throughout your process and it's going to make the experience just better for you and everyone else. So outside of those, those kinds of little resources that are there, you might also find on Facebook or meetup groups, there might be something that's around for, you'll have to excuse my toddler in the background. He's on his way to bed and I think he broke through his door out into the hallway. Um, so. <laughs> So you'll have to excuse terrible twos. That's okay. God, they're rough. I apologize. Uh, so something else that would will be in your community that you can look at too is there's usually small business meetup groups or young professional meetup groups. Now they're not going to be haunt specific, but they can help with some general advice with your business and what the direction you want to take it. So it can be worth looking at if you don't know where to start. Seek out those spaces. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. Uh, so moving, I think moving into land and commercial space, Brian, you and I, well, and Daryl too, were kind of talking about that before everyone else got on that it's a really popular question of where to find spaces and how to start. And so let's just 
dive right into that exciting adventure there. Um, this is where your commercial realtor is really going to come into play and be super important for you. Um, I do recommend with everything I'm about to say, doing your own research and getting answers directly to you because there are a lot of realtors out there that won't do this extended research that you need to do because it can be a liability for them and their license. And so they might not do it um, or they might tell you that you need to do it. And it's just a little bit easier to do it yourself. So the first thing that you really need to do is you need to figure out what your land use designation is. And this is, you're going to go on to, uh, your county or your city's website. Really, you want to go into wherever you're building it. If you live in the city and you're building this out in the county, you need to go to the county that you're going to be building in. If you're looking at a neighboring county or neighboring counties, you need to look at all those individually. These are not state regulations. They vary city by city and county by county. So wherever it is that you're specifically looking at, look up uh, the very fun and exciting zoning code rule book for where you're at. Um, you're going to look, you pretty much, you can type in, um, I know, Brian, what county are you in? Audrain County, Missouri. Audrain County. So you would just type in uh, zoning and land use codes, Audrain County, uh, Missouri. And you will see a government website link that pops up that is going to take you to a really funky digitalized uh, website that on one side is going to have uh, your um, all your different sections of the codes in the, the book. And then as you click on those, it will take you to actual paragraphs as if you were opening up a book and looking at different sections. So you're going to go on there and you're going to, in the search bar, type in land use and figure out where in the 500 some pages, the land use section uh, is described and explained. And you're going to figure out what your business most uh, is most like. So for example, working on a project in Florida and uh, we've been back and forth with one of the counties about whether or not we're qualified as an amusement park and they keep saying a carnival and the reason that it's so important to figure out exactly what your land use is is a carnival only allows operation for 10 days so there's no room for them to grow if they want to grow into uh, longer days they also have to get a special use permit with that which means a public hearing and your neighbors saying we're okay with you doing this whereas if they have an amusement park land use designation they are already uh permitted to do what they want to do in that space there's no time constrictions for their events they want to have they don't need to submit any permits and spend extra time and money doing that so really nail down and the reason that i say do all this information first before calling people is so that you're better equipped with all this knowledge before you call the people uh in your government so figure out what your land use designation is once you figure that out and that could be anything amusement park event venue uh recreational, et cetera, et cetera. Once you figure that out, you're gonna then go and figure out what your zoning code is. Your zoning code is um, specific to what your land use designation is. It can be anything from commercial, really your top ones are this, residential, agriculture, commercial, industrial, and manufacturing. Um, those all individually break down into, we don't need to worry about residential um, unless you're doing a home haunt, and then you're gonna need to apply for a special use permit for an event and you're gonna be restricted to probably five days. Um, and if you're uh, increasing the amount of traffic on your road, it's possible you have to get a extra special permit on top of your other extra special permit as well. So um, let's, oh wow, my brain just totally is cut out there on itself. 
Um, so, oh, right. Okay. So most of us, if you are uh, making any sort of a profit off of your business, you're going to fall into commercial, you're going to fall into industrial, or you might fall into agriculture. Um, it depends if you, it just depends on what your agricultural zoning uh, codes allow. So you need to find that out. You need to figure out what your land use designation is and what your zoning is. And then you're gonna take that information and you're gonna go down to the zoning uh, office, the land use office, and you're gonna clarify with them that what you found is accurate. And the reason I say go down there is because if you call them, you're gonna spend like two months trying to get a hold of somebody. They don't, they're not responding to emails very well. This is kind of countrywide that I have found this in from East Coast to West Coast. Um, it's just really difficult. It's a lot easier to just go down there as long as they're um, accepting people in person. So make an appointment, do whatever you need to do, but go down there, have a good idea of what it is that you wanna do. Um, understand that if you just pop up and you say, hey, I wanna do a haunted attraction, this is what uh, the zoning and the land use, you know, uh, information I found is for that haunted attraction in your head is going to register differently in their head. They are not mind readers as much as we wish that they were. And so make sure that you when you sit down with them, you say, this is what I want to do. Um, explain it to them, not in like a big presentation, but explain to them enough of what it's going to look like, the amount of people that are going to be coming um, to it. And you know, where you want to hold it, um, how late you want it to be open, how many days you're going to be in operation, any critical information that they might need to make sure that you're not just like a fun little friendly uh, neighborhood carnival, but you're an actual operating business that wants to see real growth and compete in the industry. Uh, walk down there, talk with them. Um, if you are uncertain in any capacity that the person you are talking to is not fully informed of all of the details, ask for somebody else to speak with um, or ask for somebody who maybe uh, just goes straight to the director or somebody like that, because this can, this right here, the reason I'm focusing so much on it is this can absolutely ruin your whole business. If you're looking to purchase or rent a space and you get involved in a contract and then realize that you can't do what you want to do. And now you have to either sell the space or find a way to break the contract without losing money. So this is like a critical, critical thing. Now, the other thing you do when you go down there is you're going to want to ask them, do they have any pre-approval committing committee paperwork that you can do? And um, with that paperwork, if they do have that, you're going to need to submit some sketches. You're pretty much filling out a paperwork that's saying, hey, guys, this is what I want to do. Um, how do you feel about this? You're going to give them that paperwork. You're going to give them a basic description of the business. And you're going to give them some sort of a visual to look at. Um, hire somebody if you're not a sketch artist yourself. I know for me, uh, I have staffed a, um, a really awesome award-winning set designer. And he does all of my sketches for me for my clients. And he's phenomenal. So find somebody that can sketch you up a bird's eye view of what you want to draw out. It's going to help you later also. It's a great investment because it's going to help you in marketing materials. It's going to help you in presenting to the investors for funding, whether or not that's, you know, banks even, or family or whoever. So it's worth it to pay to have somebody draw up what you want to do. And the county is going to appreciate it as well. If you have to go to any public hearings to defend your case or to let people know what you want to do, they everyone will have a very clear idea of your vision and there's no confusion and miscommunication in it. Um, so when you go there, bring your sketches, bring your vision, submit the paperwork. And what that is going to do is they're going to pull together all the key people like the zoning and the land use, 
the site planner, the fire marshal, anybody else that might ever be involved in this project, they're gonna pull them all together for you. And then they're gonna review it, then they're gonna call you in at some point in the ideally near future. And they're gonna say, hey, um, we like your plan, it works at this address just fine, but we have some concerns, let's talk about them. Your fire marshal is gonna be able to tell you stuff that he definitely needs or it might be red flags for him. Your um, site planning person is gonna tell you if you need any engineers to um, sign off on certain builds that are done and, uh, and your zoning person is gonna make sure that the property that you do have to have a property picked out at this point, but they're gonna make sure that it is zoned for what you wanna do as well. And if it's not zoned, what you need to do if you need any additional permits for it uh, to be able to do what you wanna do. I think Scarret badges are one of the smartest things I've seen in the industry in a really long time. Scarret badges are basically either pins or embroidered patches, uh, kind of like merit badges, as they are, you know, somewhat named after, from Boy Scouts and, and Girl Scouts and Brownies, and where after you've accomplished something, you can wear the brag tag of the embroidered patch. Some haunts put them on jackets, some put them on t-shirts, some put them on uh, with the pins. I've seen them put them on lanyards. But the neat thing about them is they are very specific in what they are rewarding. And they're haunt-based images that reflect what's being rewarded. It's retention, it is bringing people back, and it's actually giving your haunters, your haunt performers, the ability to share that they are haunt performers. And, oh really, you're a, you're a scare actor. Where do you do that? And then they will insert the name of your haunt right there. So it's also marketing. I've always been a big fan of Scarret badges. I think they're great. So check them out, scarretbadges.com. No, it is, that is not a paid advertisement. That is just my recommendation. I think it's really cool. ScottSwinson.com Now, the other thing you're going to do when you're there is you're going to ask them how long each process takes. Because a client I'm working with right now, this is was a big bummer for us, is they were hoping to open up in Christmas of uh, 2024, or sorry, Christmas of 2023. And through talking in one of the counties that we're looking at uh, with their pre-approval meeting, that one is three weeks. Fine. No big deal. Then I talked to the zoning board person, their approval, um, where they actually review what you want to do and say that that sounds fine. No problem. That's three to four months. Okay. Maybe we can still like power through the end of, you know, the year and set up a grand thing for Christmas. Um, then we talked to the site development division and they said, well, you know, they're saying three to four months, but realistically we're six to nine months out. So at this point, there's no way we can open up for Christmas. Um, and we have to now move that back to next year or to 2024 opening. So it's really important to figure out how long and, and ask them, be realistic with them. Tell them, please don't lie to me. What is the real timeline we're looking at here? Um, whatever, if, if they say it's three months, ask them again. Is it really three months or is it like maybe more like four months or six months? Like, what are we seeing right now? Uh, because that can just change the whole trajectory of everything for you. So I guess, you know, pausing real quick here, does anybody have any additional questions about land and commercial space? Now, so one probably, of the, okay, I was going to say one of the questions that I have is mm -hmm. um, when you come up with how you're going to grow in the future do you need to say you know we're at 10,000 square feet now and i expand i plan to be at 17,000 in 4 years is that something that they need to know now it's something that is important to bring up 
Um, I'd say that unless you're really changing a major aspect of your business, um, then if you're wanting to change, you know, grow your building a little bit, it might not really be that big of a deal for them because you're already approved to have the business on site and what it entails. But I always recommend thinking as far out into the future as you can, at least five years. I mean, that's like your business plan is going to be about five years out. Um, people expect about a three to five year vision. So yeah, the, um, the client I'm working with, uh, that had this, um, mishap happen with the local government taking a very long time to do stuff. Um, we're actually developing their uh, bird's eye view of their attraction for what it will look like year four. So after they've had three years, four years of growth to it. So hmm. yeah, I, like I do recommend doing that. Think ahead, um, especially if you're wanting to add on uh, like games or rides or anything like that, anything that, that's permanent really, definitely add that on. My question was if when you go to them and you bring your sketch and stuff. Is there anything else that you should bring with you, like your demographics or your, you know, things that you're predicting, you know, revenue you're predicting? Should that all be like in a binder and a folder? The way you just present it and say, no, I've got all my stuff together. <laughs> yeah. So um, a lot of the time, what you'll probably be presenting to them is um, digital off of the bat. You'll just submit it in an email or um, upload it to their website like you would other permits and applications for a city or county government. Um, but things that I do recommend bringing is a general description of what you're going to do, an estimation of how many people you might see at the space on a max capacity night. And uh, they really don't, they don't care about if it's a successful business or not, that's not, well, it's not that they don't, it's just not as much of a concern. I would bring with you information on what hours you're going to be open. Um, if you're going to be a haunt that has, uh, you know, music pumping and playing, that's going to be important to know. If you are going to be constricted by parking in the space that you chose and people might be parking along the streets, it would be good for the county or the city to have an idea of how full the streets might be with business mm -hmm. parking. So any kind of, you know, some of it's a little bit selective to each business in the spot that you'll be in, but having that information ready is good. So if they do ask questions, at least if you haven't predicted it, have, if, if you've thought about your project enough that if somebody was to ask you, you can come up with a question pretty quickly or sorry, an answer pretty quickly, but you can also say like, uh, you know, we don't have a hard estimate or we don't have a hard idea yet, but we have kind of a range we expect to have between, you know, 400 or that would be a really big range, but between like 700 and a thousand people on, you know, Halloween weekend or Halloween night kind of a thing. So yeah, I would have like, they want to see like, what's the most amount of action that's going to be happening there. So have that information for them. Okay. They kind of want to know worst case scenario, how busy <laughs> it's going to get, right? Yes. Yes. And you know, you can only predict it so much. Um, and hopefully they know that as well. So yes, bring your worst case, your best case for your business, but yes. their potential worst case right. for bring, the Let's area. rephrase that. Yes. All yeah. these people are going to be coming in and spending money at restaurants and bars. And, you know, <laughs> it's going to be great. It's going to be, be great. Awesome. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, we have no other questions in the chat regarding this. So what else can we look at when you're You've got this business plan. It's been okayed for what you're allowed to do in your area. Where do we go from there? So the next thing um, that I would recommend doing is getting with a tax professional 
at some point in time, but you need to start looking at how you're going to legally structure your business. And that means, um, are you going to become a sole proprietor? Are you going to do a partnership, an LLC or a corporation? And so working with a tax professional, it can be really helpful because they can look at the full scale of what you want to do and figure out what makes the most sense for you. Um, what I will say is almost every single one of us are going to be in an LLC and stay in an LLC very there's very few reasons to move up into being a corporation, but I will, because I work really well off of the cons of things. That's usually what determines uh, anything for me. You know, all the pros are great, but what are my cons and how are they going to affect me? So not a tax professional here, um, but based on working with tax professionals and starting up businesses of my own and working with other business owners, here's a couple of just important topics of each uh, way you can structure your business that I just wanted to review real quick. So with a sole proprietorship, it's owned and operated by just one person. Um, the big con for me is that all of your personal assets are tied to the business. So if you were to have an accident and you got sued and your insurance company is only covering so much or it goes to court and they need more money and your business has maxed out capacity, they've taken the business for you from you, to pay off whatever the insurance claim is, or to pay off whatever needs to be paid off. They can now go after your house, your cars, uh, your bikes, your RVs, your motorcycles, whatever they want, and they can take it and they can liquidate it. So all of your personal assets are tied to your business. So if your business goes, your assets go. You go bankrupt and you need to pay off that loan and your business is only gonna pay off a part of that loan by being sold or the land being sold. They're gonna go after stuff that you own at your home. Um, it is the same thing with a partnership. Partnership is two people uh, really that are both personally tied to the business. And both of their personal assets are also tied to the business. Um, I am not really convinced yet myself of a benefit of partnerships or sole proprietorships. So again, talk to your business professional about that. Um, but those are pretty big cons for me. I would like to keep my home and my car and my fun, you know, stuff that I have if, if my business ever tanks. Uh, the LLC, that's what probably most of us are going to be, like I said. Uh, that one, you can either be, so it's member owned. You can either have a single member or multiple members. Uh, the personal liability just doesn't exist there. So whatever is owned by your business is owned by your business. And whatever is owned by you is owned by you. You're going to get tax on self-employment on self taxes. Um, but if your business tanks or has a lawsuit against it, uh, they can only take what's in the business and your home and your personal assets are safe. So that's a big plus. Uh, and then with a corporation, you have S-Corps and you have C-Corps. Um, there's some nuanced differences between those. Essentially, you're no longer a member-owned company or shareholders. Uh, it's the business is its own entity in itself. Uh, there's nothing tied to it. Really, the reason that I was explained is that people move up to from an LLC into being a corporation is that they want to be taxed differently because uh, their profits are so large. So it's something that, again, you know, talk about with a, with a professional. Um, if you don't want to pay the money to hire a tax professional to talk to them, I can understand that because 
they have some pretty hefty charges sometimes. And especially if we're getting started, we want to scrape by where we can. But hiring or just um, stepping into being an LLC uh, is what pretty much everybody does. And it's super easy to start an LLC. So yeah, that'd be. Yeah, that's oh, what we did. So I do want to say something about hiring a tax professional though, is that they are full of really cool loopholes and tricks. Uh, for example, we were looking at purchasing a business where I live. And uh, when we got the financial documents, we said, well, this is interesting. The uh, owner only ever brought in this really small amount of money. How did he make a living? It turns out he owned the land and owned the business. The business was an LLC. The land was in his own personal name and the business paid rent to him. So his own business paid rent to him. So then he had rent income, which is taxed differently than W-2 or 1099 income. And so he kept a lot more that's where like the big chunk of everything came from. Um, and that's how his tax professional recommended setting it up for him. So it, it can be really beneficial to hire somebody to just, even if it's just to like have a couple meetings with, figure out the best way to uh, make your money work for you and make people's money work for you and work for them, hire them. Cause there's some wild loopholes out there. Just wild ways to you can set things up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, nobody do illegal stuff, but. That's, right. you know, there, some stuff is like kind of on the verge of this feels illegal. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's really, you know, after you figure out your land stuff, figure out how you want to set up your business. And then, uh, well, I guess, do you want me to just pop right into registering your business then? Yep. There was a question. Um, yeah. From was Michelle. Michelle. Oh, okay. Let me see. If you it can says read it, can you read it? I can. Yeah. It says, uh, we're in a hot mess with my location, all outdoor on personal property zoned residential, but since we are growing, parking lot is now an issue. The village has a population of 218. The nonprofit has been in business since 97. I took over rebranded for past five years. No fire marshal or permits have been needed. We want to move to an indoor location in central Illinois. Do you recommend setting back a specific amount from the budget to save for a property? Yes, unless you, um, if you are profitable right now and you have the ability to go ahead and put a chunk of money to the side um, for your property, then do that. Otherwise, yes, you do need to budget in for whatever uh, you might be requesting for a loan uh, to be able to purchase that property. I hope that answers. Did that seem like that answered the question? They're saying parking isn't is going to be the issue, Michelle, for parking. So I've seen some people they will buy a certain spot just for parking and then we'll shuttle people, but then you have a transportation logistics thing you have to worry about. Um, Phobius did that at another haunt that I've been to where they, where you'll, they don't have parking there, but offsite parking, people park there and then they shut on bus to bus and they have two buses mm -hmm. running back and forth and might solve a parking issue for it, but that's just an option. Okay. Yeah. It says here on her response, not sure if there's a percentage or formula. Uh, there's not a specific one. It's really what is going to work best for you with what your profits are right now. And if that's something that you want some more help on, I can chat with you more about that or uh, refer you to somebody in your area that could help as well if you want somebody more in-person and local. But there's really no like specific percentage I think it's really based on just how quick do you want to get there and um, how much money can you put there and how much, if you want to get there really soon and you can only put in a little bit of money towards that, um, like maybe a down payment's worth, then maybe that works. Uh, but if you need to 
pay much more than you can save up to move there quicker, then you would be looking at probably taking out a loan. Do you think I should lock the money into CDs? Uh, they can be helpful for sure. There's a lot of, uh, I would just look at what the stipulations of the different CDs you're looking at are, but they can be helpful. Uh, that's something that I would talk with a CPA or a financial planner uh, if you work with one already a little bit more about, because they will have a lot more details of what are like, which ones right now have really good returns and yields on them. Um, you know, that's, yeah, that's definitely something kind of that crazy. Yeah. That they, I think the average CD right now is like, uh, it's either, I think it's 9.78% is the average um, return on your CD whatever amount you're putting in. So it could be very much if you're looking at putting something in there for, I think that they said for CDs, you want to have something in there for a couple of years. It's not just like necessarily a six month, you know, put something right. in and take something out. So uh, yeah, I would, it's not, it wouldn't hurt you to do, put something into a CD to save some money. Um, it's definitely going to be better than keeping it in your uh, personal savings account where you have no interest being gained. Even, even like local banks uh, in the area, unless you have over, like, even if you have like over a hundred thousand dollars in one of their like high yield or high, you know, savings accounts, it still is only like 0.1% that they're giving back to you. Yeah. So if you're going to put money somewhere and let it sit for a while, um, definitely make it work for you. Definitely make it work for you. Don't just don't hang out with Wells Fargo and Bank of America or like the local bank. <laughs> like go, go somewhere else. Banks have sure. been in the news lately. So yeah. Just, yeah. yeah, yeah it's been a tough time for banks. Yeah. Yes. Bury all your money in the yard and sprinkle some water <laughs> on it. Some fertilizer. Let it grow. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. That's a great question. Um, okay. So the next thing that we really want to move into, and I'm going to move through this one a little quick is after you've figured out how you want to set up your business. Um, and this one really is, uh, there is a, uh, order in which you need to do stuff. You do need to figure out how you want to set up your business first. If you are bringing on people, you all need to really be in agreement that this is how you're setting up the business and you need to feel really good about that you can work well with them and that you guys can manage through conflict well together. Um, and that if they're bringing any finances uh, to the board, that it is, everything is just very clear and open communication. Um, I'm sure we all have seen friendships and relationships end over bad business deals definitely happens. So make sure whoever you're going into business with, of course, is uh, a reliable individual that you would enjoy working with in the worst of times. Uh, so once you figure out how you want to set things up, you're going to need to register your business. Uh, the first thing you're going to need to do is figure out a name for it. Uh, your name is really just how you're legally for tax purposes identified. So if you come up with a name and then you're like, ah, I don't really love it hundred percent. You can, your event can be named something different. Um, your, you know, marketing material can be named something different. Just know that like somebody at some point in time could decide to then lock that name into an LLC. And that could create a court case between you guys of who owns this name. Um, but like for me, for example, with one of my businesses, uh, it's called Western Equine Consulting. And I oftentimes just call it Western EC or WEC or Western Equine. Um, and then colloquially, we just say, oh, we're over here at Three Stones Ranch. And so your, your registered name is your legal name. Now, for my haunt business, I do use Heart of Horror Productions. That gets really lengthy to say sometimes, and I'll just say Heart of Horror or HOH. So just know that whatever you lock yourself in as, it's legally locked in. You... Um, 
but you do have some flexibility on your presentation to the public side of things with that. So once you figure out what you think you want to call your business, you're going to want to go onto your state's website. You can literally just Google um, finding, finding business names that are available in the state of Colorado. Uh, it's going to pull up some government link that's going to allow you to look up businesses in your area. You're going to type in your business name and see if anybody else already owns it. And if nobody owns it, then you can go ahead and register that name as a business um, for yourself. And the way that you're going to need to do that is you're going to need to be a registered agent. Now, in most states, you can be your own registered agent. Um, some states do require that you hire a company to be a registered agent for you. A registered agent is literally just somebody that is submitting and receiving federal and state documents for your business. So um, if you are operating in the state of Colorado, you do need to have a physical address in the state of Colorado to be like you yourself, whoever's receiving and stuff has to be registered um, in the state of Colorado to be able to open up a business there. Um, if you are, let's say you're in Florida and you wanna like, you're right on the border with Georgia there and you wanna open up like a sister haunt in Georgia, you are then going to have to have a registered agent in Georgia in order to be able to operate there under your business. So you can operate in multiple states under your business name. You just need to have a registered agent, uh, somebody physically in that area to be able to receive and submit documents for you. So if you don't wanna do it yourself, which is like totally fine and understandable because it's just another big chunk and series of documents that you need to find and figure out, uh, and then send out and submit. And by the way, you do have to pay for registering. Um, it's usually under like $100 state level and around $100 federally, I think last time I looked. Um, but if you don't want to do it yourself, and remember, if you do want to do it yourself, though, you can probably go to your small business organization in your county or city and ask them uh, what all is needed in order to submit these forms, and they should be able to help you. Uh, but if you are like me and you like paying people to just do stuff for you, because time is money and I don't want to like think harder sometimes about doing stuff, you can hire a registered agent company for you. So for example, I use Northwest Registered Agents. They've been phenomenal to work with. I've worked with them with several LLCs and it's an extremely user-friendly website. Um, you just fill out your information, um, how you're going to structure your business, what your business name is, uh, they have a whole bunch of add-ons if you want those, which are really great. Uh, they can receive all mail for you and they'll scan it and upload it all for you. So it's all in one space that you never lose. They automatically submit all of your paperwork every year. Uh, and I think that they can also help with representing you uh, with any legal counsel or in any legal issues as well. So there's a lot of like really great options. You pay uh probably an extra 150 dollars to have them do it for you i personally think that it's worth it um but you do need to register it and you do need to have some sort of a registered agent the other thing that's a plus with hiring somebody is that you don't have to use your personal address which will become publicly available you can use the registered agent's uh address so like one of my businesses shows that the business address is in Boulder, Colorado, which is like seven hours away from me. So that can be nice for protecting some of your own privacy as well, as being able to have a different place to register your business so people aren't just showing up at your property and being upset or, you know, the world's a little crazy sometimes. So it's nice to have some anonymity. Um, and then pretty much after all of your forms are submitted and approved, you're going to be sent an EIN number. And this is what you're going to use for opening all of your business accounts. 
for doing your taxes. Uh, if you have a website and you want to be paid out through your website, they're going to ask for your EIN number. Um, it's also, I think if you want to start up Google Business Suites uh, and be registered on Google as a business, you need to submit your EIN number there as well. So there's lots of important reasons to make sure that you have your EIN number. And then pretty much once your name is settled on, uh, you're going to want to go over to some sort of domain space like GoDaddy, and you're going to want to buy everything that is similar to your business name. So like for Heart of Horror Productions, I own Heart of Horror, Heart of Horror Productions, um, HOH Productions, Heart of Horror Prod, um, and then I own them at .com, .life, .net, .org. Uh, there's so many that are out there. Some of them are really cheap. It's like two bucks you know, for some of these that nobody cares about. I think the dot-com ones are usually a little more expensive, like 10 or $15. Um, but I'm going to say this because this is a hard life lesson that I have learned and I'm going to pass it along to everybody that's on this chat. So none of you experience this absolute nonsense with GoDaddy. So um, I am somebody who sets up automatic payments on everything and had a fraud uh, issue on a credit card that was linked to, or a debit card that was linked to my GoDaddy page. So when I told my bank I had a fraud uh, charge and they sent me a new card over, I completely forgot that it was linked to the GoDaddy and I missed a payment on there and they decided to cancel all of my domains, including the one that my website is linked to. And now they're telling me that if I want, and I have been in a two month long battle with them about this, that if I want my domain name back, I have to petition to this other company that's like the head in charge of all of the domain name companies. I have to petition to them to release it back to GoDaddy um, sooner, or I just have to wait for it to be released back to GoDaddy. Um, and then I have to hire somebody from GoDaddy to negotiate a purchase price for me because they're telling me it's now going to cost $60 to get it back instead of like $9 I bought it for. So do not do what I did. Don't like make a note of all the thing, like all the spaces that your stuff is um, being debited you know, or credited. For, yeah. Gosh, wherever you're wherever you're paying for stuff keep all of that and if your cards mm -hmm. or finance situation changes make sure you change everything Bin. change everything yeah i've seen yeah. similar situations in another in another work life definitely it's possible yeah and godaddy will send you like a million emails as well and so uh always i you know even if you unsubscribe to them um then they i think some of them will get through and go to your spam accounts which is then where I found those at, those notifications. Mm -hmm. So just know, please, you guys, don't let that happen to you. Because <laughs> then so you're stuck I, like maybe you have a website. I use, Go I use GoDaddy for searching. So I'll go exactly. search a domain in GoDaddy, but then my hosting provider has their own domain purchasing, yeah. maybe a couple more dollars more, but then I just go through them and it's all taken care of them because it's automatic paying stuff. So if you have a website yeah. person or whatever, have them deal with it. And like you said, it's always, it might be easier to pay somebody to do it. So. Oh yeah. Especially in this right. case. And I, you know, I should have done what you did also um, and pay my uh, website hosts to just absorb the ownership of the domain from GoDaddy onto them. Um, yeah. But I had read some article that was like, oh, we don't really recommend doing it with this host. Um, it, cre it can create hiccups and I'd already developed the web page. And so I was like, ah, I don't want to accidentally mess things up and have to spend hours fixing it. Yeah. So just yeah. Care, just be cautious yeah. with going into GoDaddy. Yes. <laughs> be very yeah. cautious for sure. Well, hopefully hopefully um, we'll get it back. Thank you. I know one yeah. day you'll see my website up again. Until then, it just is this weird non-existing space. So. All right. Or I'll start it up under a new domain name. 
Mm. Uh, let's see here. So I guess let's get into really like the bread and butter of why we're all here, right? Which is our business plan. Uh, is there any questions though of stuff that we've- We had one about uh, Michelle, Michelle about trademarks. Should you trademark the name now or should you wait? Um, I waited because I needed, mm -hmm. I think they kind of need a proof of proof that you're doing business. Cause mm -hmm. I tried, I tried doing it before. I don't know what happened. They wouldn't let they would, they got disapproved. So I waited until I actually had uh, my tickets. I could send them a ticket and a postcard of my advertisement. So kind of give you proof that you are operating as a business and then then went through. Yes. So I think that's how that works. You do need to very much prove that you are active business. And that I think also that by trademarking your name, they review to make sure you're not interrupting a business that's already in existence in the US. Um, I know I've seen that with, I don't, I've seen some like random articles of uh, common household names wanting to trademark their names and that becoming like a whole monstrous issue for people. So yeah, I think there's a lot of information you need to give them. It's not that it's, I don't recommend it. Um, I would just look into all of the details and it's also an additional cost as well. You know, I don't know what it costs personally to trademark, but I'm sure it's, it's an extra couple bucks. hundred. Yeah. yeah. Oh, let's see here. Uh, oh yeah. And then Craig, yep. Google does not like GoDaddy. It pulls up too slow. I, yeah, I would agree with that. Just avoid GoDaddy if you can buy the domains, move them over to a different host. Yeah. Avoid GoDaddy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what causes haunted attractions to shut down before they even get started? The top three roadblocks are lack of funding, lack of leadership, lack of resources. As a member of the Haunters Toolbox, you get instant access to the tools you need to start and grow your own haunted attraction business. To get started, become a member at HauntersToolbox.com. Um, okay, so let's just jump right into the business planning stuff. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that for most of the people that are on here, um, the idea and the concept of a business plan is fairly foreign. You know, this is not a grad level um, live. This is very much a 101 live. So I'm, you know, if some of this stuff sounds like stuff you already know, that is awesome and fantastic but I wanna keep it a really open space so that people feel less intimidated by moving into the business plan, which your business plan, uh, pretty much what it is, is really a plan for your business. It is a document that contains all the aspects and details of your businesses from what you guys wanna to do to who's a part of it, to the financials um, and is projected out into the future X amount of years. And it's got many useful purposes to it. So um, if you're somebody that already owns a business and you don't have a business plan yet, I encourage you to make one and build one. It's going to help you stay on track. It's going to help you look at the growth you want to do. Um, if you're somebody who's got a business plan going or mostly going and you're looking at growth spaces, it's really nice to have financials of what you already have been doing and then create a feasibility study, which is really just looking at um, this project you want to do and fleshing it out and seeing if it financially makes sense to do. Um, and, you know, you can just start at, that's, I do a lot of that is adding in feasibility studies into people's business plans already um, to see what kind of growth and additional revenue streams we can do. So your business plan can be personal just for you. It can be used 
to present to investors and to banks. Um, it can be supportive data and information for grants and stuff like that as well. So, uh, and if you're starting from the ground up, um, you don't have a business plan at all yet. Um, you know, part of the reason that I got into doing haunt specific business planning uh, is that if you, if you were to go on Google and type in like business plan template for coffee shop, there's gonna be like a thousand of them that pop up. You can pull up a couple of them, play off of each other and get a pretty decent business plan proposal set up based off of those. You'll be able to find other people's uh, business plans that they have publicly shared and be able to pull information and data off of them. Um, there's going to be a lot more just analytics out there for you to look at for uh, like a commonly seen industry like a coffee shop. Uh, we are in such a niche market that it is hard to find a lot of that data. And so it can be really nice to connect and communicate with somebody who does business planning um, to just double check what you're doing, uh, especially when you get to the numbers part of it. It makes it, I think that's where people get really swamped. Because again, like really the business plan is you're taking all of your daydreaming that you've been doing and your excitement and you're like thinking about the cool scares you're going to set up and you've like are going to revolutionize the industry with that scare and you're just picturing everybody running out screaming and like the amazing five-star reviews that you're going to get and you're super jazzed and excited and now you need to put it to paper and the paper is boring the paper is the like here's what i want to do and why i love this and here's all the math and the numbers and we're doing division and multiplication and gotta remember pemdas and gotta like populate Excel and spreadsheets. And so not everybody loves to do that. And that's totally acceptable. That's why people like me exist. Find us, we'll do it for you, we love it. Um, but I wanna try and set you guys up with um, a little bit more detailed information that's specific to our industry um, in this next bit that I'm gonna talk about. So, and if you are somebody that wants to do all of this yourself, do it all yourself. I would just say, make sure you're well organized, make sure you check all your grammar, make sure all of your numbers are triple checked and that everything is really clearly presented. And at the very least, um, I would recommend if you're looking after funding, trying to get funding, pay somebody just to read it and to give you feedback on it. Uh, it is, you know, don't find somebody who's you know, looks at a lot of business plans that can give you some feedback. Uh, don't just give it to your spouse unless that's what they do for a profession, but find, you know, find somebody that um, you would respect and appreciate taking advice from on your business plan and project. So, but otherwise do it, have at it. They're pretty fun to do. Um, okay. So going right into the business plan, there's some variation in general. Like if you were to just go ahead on Google and type in business plan template, you're going to be given about eight or nine, give or take one, uh, sections that you should include in your business plan. Uh, so I'm going to talk about ones that I commonly put into business plans for people. And so the first one is really your executive summary. And that is just a quick description of your business. Um, it's got your location. It's has what, you know, you're going to see on site. It might talk a little bit about, um, who's a part of your business with you. Uh, but it's quick. It's going to be a short paragraph. It's really like your intro hook line for people there that you're presenting this to so they can read it and be like, Ooh, this is cool. We're doing, um, I would, you know, I would, uh, um, I know we commonly say haunted house. I think haunted attraction, or a themed holiday attraction if you're doing like Halloween and Christmas and uh, Valentine's Day and Midsummer Night Scream and all of that. Like, you know, find a find something that sounds a little bit more like fancy professional corporate world to term as because they're going to be a little bit more receptive to that than haunted house is kind of 
maybe sometimes a kitschy vibe to it for people that aren't in the industry. So I tend to recommend to phrase it a little bit different, but your executive summary is just going to be what you're aiming to do, a little bit about your business, where it's going to be at. Um, after that, you're going to, you can jump into more of a company description if you want. Um, it depends on, uh, it depends on if you really, if you feel the need to like describe what you're doing a lot more. Um, to, if you have something that's a lot more complex, uh, like for example, one haunted uh, attraction business plan I have pulled up is they were looking to do, create a nonprofit aspect of it that would be educational STEM and music and theater. And so in the off season, they would be um, developing creative summer camps and weekend projects for people to come in and to learn more technical trade skills like carpentry and building, um, teaching kids uh, theatrical makeup and like light coloring and all that kind of stuff. So it was important for this business to describe um, the little tiny sentence that was in their executive summary in more depth so that if people were interested in it, they could read more about it without having to call the person up and say, hey, what do you mean you want to do STEM? Explain this to me more. Um, but after that, you're really going to talk about the organization and the management. And I know this was a question that I saw somebody post um, on the event page. Uh, who is on your team? That's going to be right after people look at the executive summary, they're going to pretty much skip right to the team. And then after the team, they skip to like the numbers, to be honest, and what you're asking for money-wise. So who is on your team? What do they have to offer? Do they have industry experience and education? Um, have they run a business before? Why are they on your team? Um, you're probably going to be asked at a meeting, you know, about people's weaknesses. Like that's not an uncommon thing to run across. Um, and I will say too, if you don't have any experience in running a business, you don't have experience in running a haunted attraction, or you've maybe been in it as an actor or a makeup artist or a lower level management position, um, where you might not be a safe bet to put your money on for an investor or a bank that is looking at giving you alone or investing in you, then you can always develop an advisory board, which is super cool. And you can say, hey, I actually have talked to all of these people that are in my industry and they've agreed to be on my advisory board. This person has 30 years of experience in the industry. This person has 40, this person has 15. And trying to fill in your gaps of experience and, and um, education yourself with people who do have it so that the banks and the investors can see that you actually have really highly qualified people that are going to help guide you through this process. And that's going to make them feel a lot more comfortable about giving you money. It's going to give them a lot more confidence in your business as well. So even if you don't have that experience in education, um, it's not the end of it. Uh, but I would go ahead and prepare an advisory board. Um, seek out people on Haunter's Hangout. There's like 41,000 of us on there. I'm sure five people on there have the experience that you need and are looking for and would be happy to be on an advisory board and um, pull that data and information together. And so that way, when you go to your meetings with your banks or your investors, you can say, hey, look, I know I don't have all this experience to make you feel confident in me and my team doesn't either, but we have this phenomenal board that does and they are here to hold our hand and guide us through this whole process. So don't give up. Um, that your organization and your management, it's going to be really broken down to, you know, what are people's skills? Why are they on the team? What are they going to be doing? If you're giving people titles, what's their title going to be? Stuff like that. Uh, the next thing you're going to want to do is jump into a market analysis. This is, you know, who are your demographics or what's your demographics? Um, that's going to be like, you know, your age ranges. Um, how far out are you marketing to? So, um, 
Are you in a really densely populated area where most of the people that are coming aren't going to want to drive more than 30 minutes to you? And so you need to look at which your population demographics are within, you know, a 15 mile radius or 30 minute radius, whatever. Or um, are you in kind of a rural space where people are happy to drive two or three hours from you? Or are you close enough to like three or four other haunts that people might drive five hours to you? stay the night somewhere and hit all of these haunts over a weekend. So look and see where you want to establish your space. Um, pull demographics from that. You can pull demographics off of previous censuses. Um, you can call up local businesses in your area as well that do things similar to you and get an idea of, um, you know, the area that you're serving and that you're looking to start up your business in and and see what they're commonly seeing. You know, are they seeing a lot of tween and teen kids come in or are they seeing a lot of... Um, you know, millennials and Gen X come in, just what is it that they're seeing? Um, and then you're going to market to that. So get your market analysis together and figure out what your community is like. Um, uh, let's see here. So another thing you're going to want to put into your market analysis, in my opinion, is how you're going to be adding to your community. What is this going to bring to your community that's important, that's exciting? Um, how is this going to add or, you know, jazz up the space more? So add that in there. You know, we're, even if there's already 300 attractions, like we know in the industry that haunted attractions benefit each other. Um, the more competition the, or the, the more competition, the less competition, right? Like you go out to a space and I know for us, we're happy to hit two or three haunts in a night if we can uh, on a non, you know, Halloween weekend night. And so use that to your advantage because people will, people are going to look at our industry as if it is a coffee shop and they're gonna be like, well, there's five in one block. Why do we need six? Well, that's not how our industry works. So come with that data in your brain as well. And, and put that out here as well. Let them know that haunts benefit from each other quite a lot. It's really common in the industry to have little groupings of them or to have them within, you know, a shared space of an hour or so. I think would you guys agree with that with your experiences with your haunts? Oh yeah. 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 yeah we, so that's like you said, most people love, we had a lot of out of town, out of state people that come and stay in hotels. Yeah. It's a good place to put parking and banners and, and uh, postcards and stuff for at the hotels because people will come in and, you know, they'll hit St. Louis and then they'll be coming through yeah. and stop at Mexico and then they'll go to Columbia and they'll hit all the, you know, three or four haunts in a week. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that, like, that's something that's important to put into your market analysis is that your competition is not really necessarily competition in a, in a negative way. Um Another thing, so after your market analysis, you're going to talk about your competitive analysis, and that's actually who's in the area. Um, so you're going to need to list out, uh, let's just say you're doing like a three, you want to pull in people that are within three hours of you. So look at people that are within three hours of you, or sorry, look at other businesses that are doing similar things that are within three hours of you. It's possible that nobody's doing anything yet, and you can definitely change your language and presenting your business to really swing that to your advantage of bringing more tourism um, around the holiday season to the space. Uh, you could talk with restaurants about maybe staying open a little bit longer. I mean, there's lots of things you can do to try and sway it positively for, for you, but you wanna ultimately write down each business, what they're doing well, 
what they're not doing well. Um, so go on Yelp, read their reviews. What are the common complaints? Because you want to make sure you do the opposite of whatever the common complaint is. And you're going to put that in your business plan. And when they talk to you, well, there's already three haunts in the area. What are you going to do different? You say, well, if you look at all these reviews, they're full of, I don't know, I've seen a common one of like kids actors who just yell at your face. And so you're saying we're not hiring anybody under the age of 16 or 17, um, depending on what your laws are in the area. But, um, you know, you can say, well, these haunts are volunteer based and um, we're going to be a, you know, we, our positions are paid positions. So we'll be able to uh, direct and guide our staff a little bit differently. Or um, we train our actors better <laughs> and we have a management yes. team that make sure yes. that they're not just yelling in people's faces. Yes. That's a big one. So figure out what the weak points are of the uh, businesses around you and then figure out if you can do it differently and how you're going to do it differently. And can you promise that you have follow through with what you're going to be doing differently? One of, our, um, one of ours was ADA compliant because we were on a concrete warehouse and we had everything built that way because we went into it that way. I know yeah. Craig was asking something about ADA and we might do something on that in the future, uh, future class. That's also a highlight because we had a lot of people would call or we had to post it on our website, ADA, and then and people would actually uh, call us or text us about being wheelchair accessible. I'm like, yeah, yes, oh, yeah. we are. That's oh amazing. Oh my God, well, I can't, we've, we've been looking all over, all for, you know, we've been looking all over Missouri for, we haven't been to a haunted house in 15 years, you know, so... <laughs> It was a good, it was a good uh, one selling point, but then again, something that would look good on business. It will look really good doing ADA and then also doing um, low or zero sensory nights. So nice. uh, for people who have autism or other sensory disorders, um, honestly, I mean, I'm epileptic and any, I would go to, whenever I go to haunted houses, I always ask what is how bad is the um, scenes that have strobe, strobe lights. lights in them? How yeah. long is it? Because I'm going to cover my eyes and I'm going to hold on to my buddy in front of me and they're going to tap me when we're out of the scene. So do I, am I working through a five foot section or like a 40 foot section? You know, I want to know, um, is it in your midway area that I'm getting stuck in like really aggressive strobe lights? So even having just those days where you can offer to just be more inclusive in your community, um, that's really important to a lot of communities right now. And it's really like something that I feel like it's not important to people unless they have a family member or they themselves are experiencing it, but it will open up your doors to so many more customers. It will open up your doors to more investors to be inclusive as well, because they're looking at being, hmm. um, well, a lot of people I think are looking at how to make their spaces more accessible. It's just more money you're bringing in, you know, by, by building your space out that way. So yeah, there's lots that you can add in there. I love that like somebody, you know, didn't go to a haunt for 15 years and then found you guys. That's amazing. Yeah. So. That's, and we thought, I mean, just, you don't think about that when you're doing it. You're just like, well, let's just build it to code and let's, but then mm -hmm. start thinking about it. The other haunts around us were either they had stairs or they and we always built things around. Like if they couldn't access it, we always built chicken outdoors around that section, yeah. like, the, like a tunnel, mm -hmm. tunnel or something. We'd build something around it. And there was always a way um, to get around something, or we would have one of our actors go with that person just to make sure especially the first couple of times that it happened, like, man, we've tested it with a wheelchair, with a wheelchair, but let's, let's <laughs> send somebody just in case. Yeah. Um, we had a large gentleman and then one of the big electric chairs, the big electric oh, yeah. chairs made it. There was one tight, come one tight turn that barely got in, but he got through it and we were like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> 
it works. I was, yeah. I was probably excited. And then you get really great reviews of people who yeah, had wonderful that's what experiences. Happened that's what happened. Yeah. So. Oh, I love that for you guys. That's fantastic. So yeah, I mean, put that in there with your, um, you know, your competitive analysis where you start talking about what you're going to do differently than your competitors as well. But also in that competitive analysis, you know, break down what do they charge? What do they have on site? Um, how many attractions do they have? What are the attractions? Are there additional, what are their additional revenue sources? Like, do you pay to get in just to the haunts and then you can pay extra to do like zombie paintball and like a three minute escape room and food that's on site, um, photo ops, whatever it might be that people are doing, like document all of those details, uh, so that you yourself also have a really thorough idea of what people are doing and you can grow to match that and exceed that. And then you can also just show like, hey, this is what everyone's doing. We're going to be doing this plus a couple extra things. Or we're doing something a little bit different. Nobody has zombie paintball. We're going to do zombie paintball. Or, you know, nobody has a clown space. We're going to do a clown space. Just whatever it is. But, like, know your competition because you're going to be asked about it for sure. They're, they will check that over. Um, after that, you know, write down what your marketing strategy is. How do you plan to market to your demographic? Um, do you have ideas of, I know somebody in one of the questions that asked about, um, you know, what to do other than radio and ads like that. Paid ads on Facebook are really big and well, other meta platform. Well, I guess the only other meta platforms, Instagram. Um, people are so doing so, so far. Yes. <laughs> yes, so far. And so far we still have TikTok. So yep. TikTok's been a really popular um, with a lot of actors. I've seen a lot of actors that are doing great jobs at like freely promoting their haunted attraction that they work at by videoing them doing cool slides and sparks everywhere and their quirky characters they've created. Um, you know, doing, um, I've seen a lot of professional haunts doing professional photo shoots during haunt season and then they have some really nice professional material to use on their websites, on their flyers, um, just on their ads. Have, if you can, do even just a couple photos, but try and get some high quality imagery, whether it's something visual for people to look at um, that's got good lighting, it's crisp and it's clear, and it encapsulates, you know, something really terrifying in your space. So, you know, you can factor that in. We're going to have a professional photo shoot, you know, pre-season to use for marketing materials. We're going to be um, putting X amount of dollars and there's no real like formula to it. It's really what you decide you want to do. I think people though tend to say about 20% of your budget should go towards marketing and advertisements. Um, you can tailor it to what works for you, uh, but you need to have a marketing strategy. You can also hire people to figure out marketing strategies for you. And you can factor that into your budget if you want to do that. And you're just not a marketer. Um, word of mouth flyers, you know, there's, I think there's probably plenty of topics on Hunter's hangout and Hunter's toolbox. If you are to search in any of those spaces for what people are doing right now, uh, but have that down there. So then the next thing that I put, and you can kind of vary where you put this in your business plan. Um, I think that it's nice to put it before your big chunk of heavy math and financials. And it's really just what your funding request is. So how much money are you going to need? Um, when do you expect your business to be profitable by? Um, what are the funds covering? So if you're asking for $300,000, what is that paying out? Is that including salaries? Is that including all your operational costs? Is that including utilities? Is that just build and prop purchasing? Is that including labor, uh, signage, you know, exit stuff, security teams? Like you don't, you don't have to write like a massive, massive explanation because it will be further down in your financials, all those really heavy details. But 
if you're asking for a big chunk of money, they want to know what you're doing with it without having to read through like five pages of numbers in your spreadsheet that you're going to also put into your business plan. Um, you do need to also have an idea of when these funds are going to be able to be paid back and how you're going to be paying those back. And you need to, um, in your funding request, it should really cover up to about three or five years of whatever your expenses are that are needed. So what I mean by that is um, if you, as you start your business, Let's say that you need $300,000 to build your haunted attraction and you need $200,000 to cover uh, operational costs. So insurance, um, utilities, paying your staff, we'll just kind of leave it at there for simplicity. Um, that next year, year two, you don't have the building fees anymore. You might have some maintenance fees that are maybe around a couple thousand dollars. Uh, but you still have your operational expenses of $200,000. If you're only profiting um, at the end of the year $100,000 to operate in year two, you still need another $100,000 to be able to operate and to pay your staff and to pay your insurance, uh, your rent maybe. So then you need to factor in, I don't just need $500,000 for year one, I really need $600,000. Now let's say going into year three, you're making, you had a nice increase and you're now profiting 150,000. Your operational expenses, let's just say that they're still the same at 200,000, um, but you still need that extra $50,000 to cover your operational expenses. So now you're asking for $650,000 for your loan. So really you wanna do the math out probably about five years, your business should be profitable by year three. If it's not, go back to your business plan and scale down or trim the fat off of places. Um, but that's what I mean by when you're asking for funding, you really do need to project out how you're going to cover paying for the next few years until you're really financially stable and established and doing it all on your own. So until you can do that, you need to ask for the money to cover that. Um, and then just moving into the financials. So People honestly expect it used to be like three to five years, but they're really looking a lot more now at having a full five-year plan um, that shows your growth, your development, maintenance, operations. Um, it's got to be, you know, again, the numbers need to be profitable by year three. If not, you need to go back and rework them. It's going to show all of your sources of revenue in here as well. Um, and what people don't consider, which is something that's really important to build into your three and five-year plan, or sorry, your three to five-year, we'll just call it a five-year plan. To build into your five-year plan, you need to consider what your um, expected numbers are going to be, and you cannot make these numbers up. So you have to do research. You have to figure out probably how many guests you're going to have, um, what a good ticket price is going to be. You can't just be like, oh, I'm making the best haunt in my area. I'm going to charge $50 for general admission. You can't do that. Um, I mean, you can, but like until you're well-established, I don't feel like the industry people are going to really be like, oh no, it's worth, you know, really going to. So try and be competitive in your pricing, um, really get realistic numbers, call up other businesses in the area that are doing something similar to you, get an idea of what their numbers have been the past couple of years, um, what their projected growth is going to be for customers, you know, for themselves that year as well. Figure out how long they've been in the business. That should also go in your competitive analysis, how long that have they been established in the area? Um, but get those numbers and there, you cannot make those up. Like you can estimate them, but you can't just come out of the blue with a number. If you do that and you go to an investor meeting and they ask questions about that or a bank and they ask questions about it and you say, well, it just kind of sounded right to me. They're not going to see you again. Some might, some might be like, come back when you have um, better numbers because they like the idea of a haunted attraction, but it's very possible you could get the boot right away. And we don't want that. 
So do the work, figure out what some good numbers are for the amount of guests that you expect to see through. And then you're going to base your financial projections off of those numbers. Um, you can estimate. So you have your expected costs or your expected year. Um, and then you can estimate on what you think like a really amazing year would be for you, um, an ideal year. Um, that one you get to guess a little bit more on. Maybe you say you have a 7% growth or a 15% growth in clients over that year, but you or in that year, but you know, I think a lot of people in COVID had like a really big increase in our, is it during COVID or like right after like 2021? I think when things opened back up, people saw big surges in numbers. So that would be like an ideal year. Like you didn't expect these big surges, but they're awesome and nobody's complaining. It's a little bit of an anomaly. You really can't predict we're gonna have another pandemic. And that the year after that pandemic, when things open back up, it's going to be exciting again. But 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 plump your numbers a little bit for an ideal year. Same thing, you need to have a worse category. So what is the worst going to look like for you? Now, for this, do not, again, um, expect to have, uh, expect to be able to predict some giant world event happening. This is just like maybe the weather is really bad that year and you have an outdoor haunt or, um, or even indoor haunt, but just... Nobody wants to come to it because it's like all of a sudden tornado season where you live in Tennessee or Kentucky, you know. So I have some plans for just what a worse year would look like. Um, they are going to want to see a worse expected and ideal for each of your five years. This is this is where it gets annoying for people. Um, this is where learning how to populate Excel spreadsheets will really work in your favor um, because then you can just say, well, in a worse year, I'm going to expect to do 15 to 20 percent less in an ideal year, um, seven to 15% better. And then it'll just take whatever your middle category is and it'll populate the side categories for you. And it's beautiful. And you just cut out an extraordinary amount of frustration, potential divorce, and, um, you know, throwing something through a window for the hours spent doing that. So learn to tinker with Excel a little bit so it can just do all the hard work for you. Um, I will say your worst year if you were to have five consecutive years of it being your worst year, by year five, you should still start to see some profitability. If you're not, go back and rework your numbers. See if your worst year is worse than it, you know, is, is like maybe you made it too dramatically worse. Um, or maybe there's just something in your business plan that needs to, in general, be altered and that you've overestimated your expected year. Um, as well. And you need to kind of scale everything back. So that is this is. The financials is going to be like the big chunk of the hard work that you do. So five-year plan each year needs to have a worst expected and ideal category. Um, you're going to put everything in there from um, like it's have it be really detailed for yourself. You don't necessarily need to give it to an investor. Um, like when I write up a lot of proposals, um, it might just be a profit and loss statement. I expect to bring in from these different categories this much money. And then I expect to put out this much money. And this is what my net profit is at the end of the year. Um, but then for myself, it's going to be like a 15 page document of like, I've bought seven signs and it costs this much money. And we're buying this much makeup and it's this much money. And we're buying or, you know, hiring the security team for this many hours and this many days. Uh, and it's at this rate. And so I, for myself, get really detailed because what will happen is when you go to a meeting, they might just say, hey, do you have more details on this? Where did these numbers come from? And then you can say, I do. And you can pop up your Excel spreadsheet or your printout and hand it to them. And then they have all of the details right there in front of them. And then you look extra good and professional as well, because you didn't have to be like, well, let me get back to you in like two months after I write that all up and do that. 
um, you just have it right there. Now, something to talk about with budget that I think is really important. To me, there's like two really solid good ways that you can budget for haunted attraction. One is you can say, I only want to spend $300,000 on the build, $100,000 on um, operational expenses, and I'm going to stick to that. And then everything you do to build your haunted attraction stays to that budget, stays to those categories. Um, maybe you add in $20,000 for uh, marketing, but you stick to that. So everything is built to that number that you've already decided on. And that might just be that you don't want to be more in debt than $500,000 if you're asking for a loan. Or if you're putting your own money into it and you say, okay, I've saved up, um, you know, X amount of money and that's all I want to spend on this. Well, then you need to stick to it, right? So having that number building so that you're in that number, having a little bit extra left over for the oh shit, what just happened? We have to fix that and we need money for that is really good. Factor in that little like uh, emergency fund. Um, now the other way you can do it is you can say, I have this idea in my head of exactly what I want. How much is it going to cost for me to build that? And then you can um, go through every little detail and space of your attraction and you can price everything out and put it all together. And then you can decide if you like that number or if that's a really large, scary number and you don't like it. And maybe you don't want to do it as big year one, but you want to grow into this space. How can we scale it down and make it a more uh, palpable, palatable uh, number for you for year one? And then maybe by year four or five, you grow into that really large space. And by that, I mean, maybe you don't have four haunted attractions right off the bat. Maybe you start with one and like some food trucks, or you start with like two smaller ones instead of one really massive one. So there's lots of ways to scale, but to me, that's the best way to budget. Either pick a budget and stick with it or build everything out how you want it. See if you can make those numbers work for you too. Because if you have like a $3 million haunt that you've built and then we'll take to like between build costs and operation and everything, it's $3 million. And you live in rural, um, I don't know, like rural, Missouri, anywhere rural. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, rural <laughs> Missouri. Like you are probably gonna take like, I don't know, 20 years maybe. Like it's going to take Possibly. you a long time. Yeah. yeah. To, to reach that. And so you might then need to be like, well, what is, what makes more sense for the area that I live in? And then you need to go back to your market analysis and you need to go back to your competitive analysis and you need to scale down your grand ideas, or you need to move to like new Orleans um, or, or St. Louis or somewhere that has like a really big haunted attraction uh, community and then build your $3 million haunt there. So but the $3 million haunt in a rural setting is going to be a lot bigger than a $3 million haunt in a big city. So very good points. Yes. You will <laughs> be spending a million and a half on rent. Otherwise spend a million dollars on marketing. That's all. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's true. There. 1 million in marketing, 3 million in haunt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so definitely, you know, look, look at all of, pay attention my, to all of that. My biggest things where I see people messing up is they, like you say, building too big at first mm -hmm. and not being ready for the everything that goes with it or spending money on things that they don't need the first year yes. you, they don't, you don't need the thirty thousand dollar props out there you don't need all yep. that year yep. one or hiring too many people and not really you know realizing that you could maintain your attraction 50 people instead of 150 mm -hmm. people, so yeah definitely scaling up is way safer and you know the people that you present to are probably going to call out the holes in your plan and project. And um, depending on how receptive of a person you are, when somebody calls out those kinds of plans and holes, it could be hard to swallow that reality that they give to you, which might not be polite either. Um, there's a lot of investors that are just very blunt, very to the point, 
and they will shred your proposal apart very quickly um, if there's a lot of holes and gaps in it. And so really thinking of all these little details um, is really critical to having success in, in getting funding, in my opinion. Um, yeah, be prepared. Be prepared. Well, the more, the more uh, of the idea you have for your business plan is gives you confidence as well. You might oh, yeah. be nervous going in. You're going to be more nervous if you don't have backup situation. Mm -hmm. People who are attending this class tonight are, are, are viewing it after um, at least have an idea of some of those questions that they're, you know, that they may be asked, right? So uh, a lot of people wouldn't think about some of these things. Oh, yeah. Building a business plan. You're going to be grilled on if you get to the point where you're sitting down with an investor or the bank and they're fully reviewing the proposal that you've, your business plan, your proposal for, you know, what you've handed to them. Um, I mean, they're going to come through it with a fine tooth comb. Uh, especially if you're asking in our in our business, you know, we're usually asking for a big chunk of money. Um, so if someone wants to know that they have confidence in giving it to you and that you'll be able to pay it back on time or they'll be able to make money off of you if you're looking at an investor. So that's even doing like what I do with the business coaching for the haunted attractions is um, we even do mock uh, investor presentations where I act as the investor and people can um, present their business plans to me and then I can help run through it with a fine tooth comb and um, help them feel more prepared so that they're less jittery and anxious going into a meeting and they have a lot more confidence going in. And you're totally right, Daryl, like the more of a clear picture you have in your brain about everything, including the numbers, the more confident you're going to be in that meeting, which confidence goes such a long way to getting money, such a long yep. way. Yep. Gosh, it's insane. Um, and then speaking of finding money, um, I know we're like at our time. I'll run through this real quick. So the key differences between banks and investors is your banks are looking to do a longer loan term, like 15, 20 years with a much lower rate. Um, you know, they're really going to be looking to probably get back, I don't know, three to 6% um, over their the loan term. Um, whereas with a personal investor, a private investor, they're looking at a much higher return on investment of like 10 to 20%. And they want it much quicker at probably about five years. Um, some people might be able to stretch that out a little bit longer. Um, you might find like a really generous, exciting investor that's just thrilled for you. And they're happy to wait maybe 10 years to get their investment back. But personal, like people who are doing personal and private investing, they are, their goal is to make money. Like that's their goal. So you need, if you want to go after somebody who has big money and then you're not tied to a bank, um, you've got to show them that like your profits are big margins and that you're going to be able to give them a big chunk of that margin. And they're going to be able to recoup their money fast and make money off of that fast and grow their personal wealth more, which really is what like personal investors are doing is they're just interested in growing their personal wealth um, and generational wealth and stuff like that. So uh, if you do want to go after personal private investors, um, just know that your numbers, your profits have to be nice and fat and plump enough to be appealing for them uh, is really the big thing. You can find uh, investors that are willing to do a little bit less. Like you can negotiate with investors the way that you can't negotiate with banks. Um, banks are going to be very rigid on what other banks are doing and what the accepted norm is in the industry across the US. Whereas investors, you can really talk with them more about like, well, what if I, um, you know, at year five when we're profitable, I give you like an extra 10% on top of things. And year one, we don't pay you that 10%. And I don't know, you can manipulate stuff in lots of different ways. You can 
you can find ways that might work for them, asking them what might work best for them. Um, but that's really like your big difference um, between banks and investors. The really fun, exciting things to find are angel investors. They are out there. There are people that just want to give you money and they don't want any money back. If you find those, don't tell a single soul that's a unicorn. Um, but they exist. They're absolutely out there. The way you find them is through networking. You can like go to quirky galas and events. Uh, people where places where like really rich people hang around, go find those places, go to them, hang out, go get yourself a suit or a dress, go to those, pay the like $90 fee to go eat the dinner with you know, the super rich people or whatever, and talk with them and network with them and, and hang out. You'd be really surprised how excited people are about your passion and your interest, no matter what it is. Um, of course, you can always ask family for help as well. There's also a lot of grants that are available. Even if you're not a nonprofit, there's lots of grants that are out there and available. Uh, you do need to apply for them. There's ones that are specific for arts and crafts or education, and you might want to tweak certain aspects of your business to better fit what the grant, um, like the kind of business that the grant would like to give money to. So like including education and STEM projects and people learning trade skills, you can then apply to educational grants for youth. Um, and that can give you more money coming into your business for those programs that will lead to more money coming in probably year round and more year round money as well. And this is a hard thing in our industry is we're saying, hey, I need you to count on me that I'm gonna be able to repay this loan based off of 10 days of being in operation or 30 maybe if you're like grown or really lucky. Like that's it, that's a pretty scary thing mm -hmm. to bring to somebody. So that's why your numbers and everything you're doing needs to be so solid so solid and you need to come with as much fake confidence as you can possibly muster like get that caffeine in you you listen to some like whatever music really gets you going and then take several deep breaths and then like go to your go to your meeting you know and just be like this is what i'm doing and you're coming along with me thank you for your checkbook and you'd be surprised people will be like wow okay i'm interested continue um there's also micro investors that are out there and there's like a variety of websites that are around, just type in um, anything into Google about micro investments. And there's people that are um, not super rich and wealthy, but they're looking to just like, you know, put 5,000 in and maybe get a couple hundred bucks back, um, even 10,000, 20,000. Uh, but it's just people who don't have that big, super huge wealth, but they still have some and they're trying to make their money work for them outside of traditional methods. And they're happy to invest in businesses. So look for micro invest investors. Um, they are really cool to work with. You can even look for private investment companies and, um, you know, reach out to them. And then there's, uh, this one I think is really important is that there's a lot of non-financial investors that are out there. Um, I know I found one here where I live just by sitting at a coffee shop and opening up conversation with, um, a fellow sitting next to us eating breakfast. And he was like, Oh, what do you guys do? And I was like, well, you know, I just do work in the haunted attraction industry. And he was like, that's interesting. And he's like, I love haunted houses. I own a construction company. And I said, oh, no way. And he goes, are you trying to build a haunted house? I said, well, yeah, one day. I mean, that's like an ultimate goal. And he's like, well, when you do, I'll do all the all the labor for free for you. Wow. wow. Okay, deal. You want to put your name on the title? Like, let's go. Free you tickets build, for life. You want to bring your family. Bring, yeah, bring, bring everybody. <laughs> yeah. So make those connections in your community. Talk about what you love and what you do. You never know who is sitting next to you that has skills that they might want to freely offer or be a part of things with you in some capacity. Um, I mean, having somebody do free, I mean, something about like 40% of contractor fees is just labor cost. So that's a huge chunk of money saved by somebody being excited about being a part of this project. I mean, that's great. I'm not going to until you know so yeah that's kind of um you know those are some ways that you can find money really good 
really good ways. Michelle was asking, uh, do you type in grants into Google or is there a specific place to look for them? So I would type in, so you can look at grants there. Like your city will have grants. Your county might have grants. Um, there are nationwide grants that are available. Um, you, depending even on where you live, there might be a, what's called economic opportunity zones. A lot of those places right now are geared more towards tech and medicine, but you can still find some. It's pretty much a city just being like, we want to see more of this type of um, these types of businesses moving in into this area. And they give like grants towards it or they give better tax deductions towards it, which is really nice. Um, so you can type in economic opportunity zones and then add your county or your city to that. Um, but yeah, I would just type in, um, you know, get creative with what you're typing in. Uh, ours was called a small business grants. My, yeah. my town is a tourism, tourism grant. Cause they want Yes. And it's basically, it was like 2,500 bucks or something. It was small, but it was enough to cover advertising stuff. Nice. So it yeah. was, uh, but yeah, they, they issue so many a year. So she's like, get your application in early. <laughs> yes. I was like, All right. <laughs> Got yes. It. So. Get it in early and grants are going to want you to have a very specific idea of how much you're asking for, exactly where that is going, and when that project is expected to be completed. So for the most part, I mean, there's some variation, yeah. of course. But yeah, Michelle, I would just type in grants into Google. Um, you can type in, um, I don't know what state you're in, but we'll just say Missouri as well. Type in um, grants for small businesses in Missouri and see what pops up or um, grants for small businesses Midwest. Uh, see what pops up. There's plenty that are nationwide. There's plenty that are small. There's so many that it's very easy to get lost in it. Uh, and you're just going to look for ones that are probably arts and crafts, entertainment, tourism. Um, if you're doing anything educational, look for that. If you're um, nonprofit of, well, if you're in a nonprofit, you're already familiar with grants and for nonprofits. So yeah, Google, Google's a great place to just get creative with what you type into the search box. Now cool. cause AI generated stuff, hard to say what's going to, what'll be there in the next couple of years. Yeah. The AI is wild. It's insane. Um, it yeah, is crazy. absolutely changing a lot of what's going on. So play around with that too. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got quite a few people on tonight. Does anybody else have any questions? We are kind of coming to the end of our presentation this evening. So we want to make sure you guys get your questions in so that uh, we can either answer them on the show or by the time we release our uh, show notes and put this up on our website. So please feel free to type your questions over in the chat box if you've, you've been active in there. So we thank you very much for that so far. Mm -hmm. Thank you, guys. So, Allie, is that the end or do you have more stuff to? Well, I mean, I really, that's the end of what um, I wanted to get through for today. Okay. I think um, I've, we, I've picked up a lot too as well. So oh, that's good. Yeah. And there's so much, uh, you know, just going back even to the financial uh, story that you guys, that people will be creating. Um, oh, I guess something I did want to mention is that really investigate all of your hidden costs with your finances. That is something that all those $20, $100, $200 things will add up into a couple thousand dollars really quick, can really throw off your budget. So what um, are some examples of some of those hidden costs that people might not? Yeah. So increase in utilities, increase in rents, um, loan rates, depending on if you have a locked in loan rate or not. Um, your mm. operational stuff, just uh, even like if you're going to be how much makeup your actor or your makeup artist might accidentally go through that you didn't plan for. Um, 
props you know, maybe your actors destroy. Yeah, props your actors destroy. Maintenance on those props, um, insurance. All honestly, all the permitting and the application fees. Those surprisingly add up pretty quick. Uh, if you are looking at buying land, you're going to have to draw out utilities, and that can be very expensive to do. If they're not already on the property, then you have to draw it out to the property, and then wherever it is on the property, you have to draw it out from there. I think there's a lot of little logistics um, where people are like, okay, a parking lot. Well, in the parking lot, you need signage, you need lights. Um, you probably want something that designates what your rows are. You need an entrance, you need an exit. Um, and then even just attendance. in parking attendance, you should probably have a security person out there. Um, and that's why I really encourage people with the business coaching that, I mean, when I do business coaching, we go through every single area of your haunt and talk about it in detail. What's going to be lit up? What's here? What's this vibe going to be like? Are there scents? Are there, um, uh, you know, fog machines here. Do we need trash cans in this area? What's the flow going to be? How are people going to be coming into the space and how are they going to be exiting the space? Um, is this in porta potties is a big one, mm -hmm. porta potties, septics. Um, I always recommend people, um, have a little bit of savings somewhere for the oh shit stuff that happens in the middle of haunt season. Um, oh, that never happens. No, <laughs> never happened. Oh, um, uh, here's one. Uh, so, um, there is a lot of stuff that's sold in the industry, um, at our conventions that you can buy and negotiate down for a really cheap price off of Alibaba. I'm sorry, but you can't, it's literally pretty much the exact same stuff. It just doesn't have that person's logo on it. And you can go on to Alibaba and you can find so many things that are on there. And some of them are literally exactly what's in the industry. Some of them are a little bit of knockoffs. Something we just talked about with um, clients I had that were looking at putting in some inflatable um, uh, areas into their space was making sure that those are fire retardant materials that they're built out of. Um, because that would be an awful expense to spend 20 grand on a couple of inflatable things, come over, your fire marshal puts a flame to it and it all goes burning to the Oof. ground. Yeah. yeah, poof, or I guess really it would just probably melt a hole in it. And it would, but, but now it's ruined and you could patch it and maybe resale it to somebody. Um, but you're losing money regardless. So if you're buying stuff overseas, you know, really get creative in like, what are the difference? Like, what are the needs? Um, the Does it meet all of the code requirements here? Yes. Right. Yes. It's like, yes. Hey, great. Those, um, those, you know, fake flaming bulbs, are they legal here? You know, <laughs> is this brand yeah. legal here or do I have ones that already have in Canada, we have CSA Canadian safety association. So yeah. they have to be CSA approved. Uh, and we see recalls for non-haunt products all of the time that yeah. oh they didn't have they're not they're not csa approved right so yes i imagine there's uh, underwriters laboratory same sort of thing they have to meet certain stringent requirements for safety so they don't explode and destroy everybody yeah it would that yes that would be like any little thing that oh here's a big piece of advice i would give um is do not go off of the word of other business haunted attraction owners um, in the industry about how you can build your haunt to get around certain code requirements. You really need to be upfront and honest with your fire marshal, with your site planner, um, the development team, engineers about what you're doing. So one like thing we're trying to navigate through right now is, do you need to have a water suppression system 
for like sprinklers, overhead sprinklers for a haunted attraction that is built underneath of a pole barn. It's not connected. There's a little bit of gap between the walls of the haunt and the pole barn. But is the fire marshal going to consider that an enclosed building that then requires fire suppression systems? Or this is the way that the mechanics of a fire work. Would it create a flush out? And the, the question that my clients have is, they were told by somebody in the industry that they were able to get around it because with like a two inch gap, that was enough space for big smoke and stuff to like get sucked out and pulled through. And I was like, I, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I'm not a professional in the physics of fire and smoke. Um, but just don't, don't, don't just uh, take people's, uh, what they do for what would be acceptable for your haunt to do. And also um, considering safety, because at the end of the day, even if your fire marshal is like, yeah, like that could work, that we could, you know, it's a gray enough area. I can't comment one way or another, you know, say um, your insurance company might feel very differently. So if you end up having a fire in your haunt and there are injuries or death that happen because of it, um, even if the fire uh, marshal gave an okay for how it was built, um, if you weren't really clear with your insurance company about aspects of it, they might nail you and not pay out insurance claims. And then mm. your business is going under and you're going bankrupt. And depending on how you have it legally structured, you might lose your home and your car. I was about to add that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, lose it all. So yeah, yeah. Um, be honest with everybody that you're going to be working with on exactly what you're doing and how you're doing it and make sure you clarify everything so that when the day comes that you want to open or the couple of days before you want to open and they come to view the space, there is no question on anybody's mind that you're going to pass or not. So so in closing statements, the uh, yeah. there was a subtitle of this um, masterclass that was that owning an attraction didn't have to be scary. So in your summary, what would you advise everyone to, if they're just getting started? If you're getting started, um, know that it's going to take a little bit of time for all of these details to come together. It's, it's, you're going to have ups and downs with getting through it and don't give up on it. Um, you're going to have moments where you feel really dejected. Maybe the numbers don't work out or the city doesn't quite like your idea or the county doesn't, or the neighbors are throwing a fit about something. Um, you are then able to get super creative about how to find compromise or how to alter what you want to do to make it maybe better. Sometimes I think the things that don't work out, um, work out in better ways than we ever could have imagined and choose to believe that when you run up against speed bumps, be flexible. And if you're uncertain of where to go forward, reach out to people who have more experience than you. Just reach out to them. Reach out to them. Um, ask, you know, a lot of people do consultation stuff, a little bit of questions, but there's lots of ways to just use all the resources and support around you to help you get through it. Because at the end of the day, we all want you to be successful. We all want more haunts in this country. Um, and if anybody is here from, uh, you know, other countries that are spaces outside of North America as well, then like, you know, we want you to all be successful, like have a good time doing it. If you get bogged down with something, take a break away from it, you know, so that you can sleep at night. You're not running numbers through your head from the hours of like midnight till 4am. Or so, work on your advisory board because you yes. need between you and your team, you need to be as passionate about your business plan as you are about designing and, and making the haunt itself. So Yes, actually, that's a really phenomenal point. Um, when creating your team, um, it's okay if your skill that you bring to it is like the passion and the drive and the creativeness. There's nothing wrong with that. You just need to balance that with finding somebody who likes the boring stuff, the numbers. Well, 
for what would you be the boring stuff, the numbers, the details, the semantics of everything. So find that person and bring them onto your team. Um, this is not an industry to go it alone um, in, I think. I think it's really important to network and to bring people together in your community because you don't know what connections they have that could benefit what you want to do. So yeah, absolutely. Like whatever gap, oh, being realistic. Do be realistic with yourself about where you're Pro, where your skills are and where your weak points are. And then just fill those in with people that you find, advisory board or team, whatever it is. But yeah, take it easy. Like it doesn't need to be scary. You'll get there. We're all here so, to like support that. Where can they find a business coach named Allie Stones? Hey, well, definitely <laughs> not on heartofhorror.com because GoDaddy still owns it. Uh, <laughs> but I was sorry to bring that up. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Um, you know, you can email me at heartofhorrorproductions or at gmail.com. You can also just send me a message on Facebook under this name, Allie Stones. I'm on Haunters Hangout. I'm on Haunt Masters. So you can search me there as well. And um, I'm happy to talk to people um, over the phone and consult with them or chat with them through text message. But those are the easiest ways until my business site comes back to me. <laughs> I'm praying for you. Thank Learn from you. other people's mistakes. Make sure well, that you got your credit cards all in order. Oh, don't trust GoDaddy. <laughs> <laughs> steal your website from you. But yeah, just if anybody has any questions, like honestly, reach out to me. Um, there's a lot of services and stuff that I do for free or really low cost as well. So um, I just want to see everyone successful and I want more haunts. So let's just make it happen. It's good. We all do. It raises mm -hmm. everybody up. So yeah, it does. Cool. And if you guys need a community, of course, like Allie said, Haunters Hangouts good. Haunt Masters, that's our private group. We also mm -hmm. have Haunters Toolbox, which is a free Facebook group. We have almost 13,000 people over there. So come over there and shoot your questions. And um, someone's always willing to give their two cents. But it's always best to attend master classes like this that have lots of good information. We have a lot of that stuff on HauntersToolbox.com as well. We have some free stuff in there too. So you can set up to be a member. But thanks, Allie, for your time. Yeah. Uh you didn't have a two I didn't have a two year old, but I had a cat here for a minute. So <laughs> I didn't hear the cat. So I had to kick him out. <laughs> well hey, thank you guys so much for joining me tonight as well, talking about business planning. And I hope it was informative. And Brian and Daryl, thanks for having me well, on. And I was very informed about everything that you said. There's a lot of stuff that I hadn't thought about. I haven't had to do any business plans myself recently, um, but I know there's stuff on here that the people that were listening or will be watching after the fact, we're getting lots of big thank yous and uh, oh, uh, it seems great. that you answered the questions. So great. Awesome. Talk. I love it. Cool. Today's episode was edited by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope and original music composed by Chris Thomas. Support for today's episode comes from Gantam Lighting and Controls. Gantam illuminates attractions worldwide with the world's smallest intelligent spotlights. From Dark Hour to Netherworld, Super Mario Land to Hagrid's Bike, Gantam goes where other fixtures can't. See what you're missing with a free demo? Sign up at gantam.com demo. That's gantam.com demo. The HAN team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Louise Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Omni Adventures. Until next time, stay scary. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production. <laughs>